0: Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to uh, the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 24. I'll begin reading at verse 36. You follow in your copies of that which is inspired, inerrant, infallible. The very mind of God is black words on a white page. You follow as we read. Luke 24 at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The grass withers. And the flower fades. with the word of our God. That endures forever. What I've just read you is perhaps the, the fullest and the most deliberate, the most intentional of all of the resurrected appearances. I want to explain to you what I mean by deliberate, if you'll just um, hang with me a minute. Guys, if, if there ever were a day that we Christians ought to be thinking happy thoughts, it ought to be today. And yet, on, on the first Easter morning, Jesus was greeted with anything but happy thoughts. He was greeted with um, doubt, with fear, with confusion, with disillusionment. And into that audience, that audience that is characterized by those things, he speaks this. He says, peace be unto you. <laughs> he says peace to a group that has not a smidgen of peace. Now, guys, um, I think you know something. uh, Maybe you've heard of the word shalom. Um, That's a Hebrew word, which means peace. And that's not the word that you find here because this is a Greek New Testament. And so you find the the Greek equivalent of the word shalom. You find the word irene, which is the same thing. It's just the Greek equivalent of that shalom. (laughs) For a Jewish audience, shalom was not simply... um, the absence of war, or the absence of anxiety, or the uh, uh, the absence of danger, for a Jew, shalom was kind of a, a, a an inner and outer peace, a total well-being, kind of a wholeness. Now, I say that to say this: Jesus comes into an audience to a group of men who are in they're undone, they're a wreck. And he says peace. <laughs> well, they ain't got any of that. And and um, but he brings them to the place where they have some of that. How does he do that? What does because between where they are and peace is a whole lot of doubt. And there's a whole lot of questions that have to be answered before these guys who are wrecks before they ever come to this. This shalom, this whole sense of well-being that Jesus opens this passage with, they have none of it. But they're going to get it. And what you get to do in this passage is you you get to watch Jesus bring them to the place where they are frenetic. They're just a They're just a wreck. You get to watch him take him from take them from that to this thing called shalom. And I want to show you how he does it. How does he do that? Well, first of all, guys, um, let me tell you how he doesn't do it. He doesn't talk to them about spring. Or, you know, I just wonder how many people have gone to church this morning and they're talking about spring. or Or second chances or starting over or reinvigoration. He doesn't talk about any of that. The way he deals with this with this little small audience of eleven, Judas is gone. The way he deals with his audience, you know how he does it. He argues with them. Basically, what you've got, at least in the first half of this passage, is Jesus arguing with his, with the eleven. Now, that's not a very positive concept, is it? Arguing. Well, let me see if I can say it nicer. What you find Jesus doing in this passage is that he is playing the part, he is playing the role of an apologete. You know what that is? An apology? It's a churchy word, I guess. But um, an apologete is one who engages in the art of apologetics. You know what that is? <laughs> apologetics is the art, it's a defense of the faith. Do you see what Jesus is doing here, guys? He is confronting these this, this band of eleven who is completely undone. He is confronting them with the facts of his resurrection. Knowing that if they can ever wrap their minds around this, then peace will come. Shalom. He confronts them with some facts, which I'll show you in just a second. But, guys, he understands that the only peace that's worth having is one that's rooted in, founded upon, grown out of, facts. You eliminate the facts, and whatever you have that you might think is peace is baseless. Let me say it differently. If, if you're going to have, if any of us are going to have any happy thoughts at all, they're going to have to be found, they're going to have to be rooted in, they're going to have to be based upon something factual, not something dreamy. And, and if they are rooted out in, into something factual, then, then maybe there's going to be some nice little feelings that, that go along with it. I don't know, but feelings are tricky things, guys. Feelings are, um, you never start with feelings. Feelings are always the result of something else. You never address feelings directly because they're, they're, they're produced by something. They're, normally they're produced by thinking and, and, and understanding. But you can't create those things. And the more you try to create them, the more you lose what you're trying to create. You never address feelings directly. And so Jesus in this scene, his, his, his strategy, is to bring about a certain shalom. He mentions that as he opens the text. He brings that about by confronting them with some facts. He argues with them. And his argument is designed to produce a, a, a certainty of his resurrection so that, that that total well-being stuff, that shalom stuff... That they might enjoy, that they might experience. Guys, he doesn't want them stuck in the midst of their own uncertainty. There's no peace in uncertainty. And so, he designs an argument so that he can take them and plant their feet in something solid. So that he can give them something underneath them that's firm on which they might build a whole outlook of life that could be called shalom. He takes them to peace by arguing with them. He takes them to this place where they they enjoy peace after they have considered a series of facts. He takes them, ladies and gentlemen, to the place that I want to take you. We'll get to that in just a second. But before before we do that, I just want to point this out. It's just kind of a minor little side road. Guys, you will notice in this story that Jesus does not rebuke the desire for credible evidence. If you are one here that wants a little proof, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know Jesus never rebukes that. Christianity invites you to investigate. Christianity never shies away from the light it it um, what you find in this story is that Jesus answers all the doubts of their minds beginning in verse 38 and by his so doing he brings them he carries them he leads them to peace a peace that is founded upon based in rooted in grounded upon some truth some facts some evidence what he does in this story is that he paints he paints the most unbelieving of them into a corner by the facts. He, uh, he, he says, in essence, uh, you know, you guys may reject those women that first came to the tomb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you might not want to listen to Peter. He is kind of flaky. Um, and you might not believe those two guys that were on the road to Emmaus. But now, standing in front of you is the chief piece of confirmation. Me. And when I get finished here, says Jesus, you're going to have to go one way or the other. Because I'm about to confront you with a series of facts. Guys, that's what I want to do this morning. Basically, I have two halves of my sermon. I want to show you how Jesus deals with these guys. And then I want to try. You know I'm not in Jesus' league. But I want to try to do the same thing for you that he did for them. And when I'm done, I want you to be in a place where you're going to have to go one place or the other. You're going to have to embrace this, or you're going to have to rail against it. Let's um, let's get to work. I want you to notice Jesus' method here, guys. Um, what he does with, with the 11, as I said, Judas is long gone. He has been gone for a while. But he's dealing with the 11, and I, I said that he's arguing with them. Let me show you what I mean. Guys. Notice how he starts. He starts in verse 37 by speaking to them. Wait, in verse 38. He starts by speaking to them. It's a a sound that they recognize. It's a familiar sound. It's the the sound of his voice. It's not the sound of a spirit or a ghost. You know, they don't talk. They go, ooh. Jesus speaks. He speaks to them in a way that they can recognize that it's his voice that's speaking. The first piece of evidence that he confronts them with is a sound. It's something audible. It's something that goes through the auditory canal. It's a sound that's familiar. It's a sound that they recognize. It's a voice that they know. And they're frightened by it. But notice, guys, what he does next. Why are you troubled in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. There's holes in them. There's holes in the hands. There's holes in the feet. Look at them. Take a good long piece of investigative look at these holes that are in my body parts. Examine this. Inspect it. There is, he invites them to investigate. So he has given them something that's audible. And next he gives them something that is visible. Keep reading. He then says, touch me. Touch me. Touch my flesh and my bones. Feel that there's a skeleton under there. That there's, that there's a, that there's a frame, that there's, there's something tangible. And then he goes on to say, spirits don't have that. He gives them something tactile. He's got something audible, something visible, and something tactile. Guys, do you see what he's doing? Do you see what Jesus is doing with the eleven? He's saying, I, I I see that, you know, this piece that I want you to have, you don't have. So, okay, then watch this. Listen. Look. Touch. And then in verse 40, we're told after they consider that a bit. Uh, and then verse 41, they're still not. They're still not convinced. And so do you notice what he does next? He says, you got anything to eat here? That's almost comical. You got anything to eat? He doesn't need anything to eat. But it's his sweet way of convincing them that, that he's really there. And so he sits down and eats a piece of broiled fish with them. You know, just like old times. And then as far as i'm concerned the the crowning piece of his his evidence comes last when he um, he says in verse 44 these are my words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that everything written about me in the law of moses the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled you see what he's done he looks at these guys and he says everything that you're experiencing is in complete conformity with things that you know that came out of that book that is he appeals to scripture As what they're experiencing, as he is the fulfillment of that. That what they're witnessing is in perfect accord with the scriptures. Now, could I once again pause for an aside? Guys, do you know what you're getting here? You're getting Jesus' view of the Old Testament. And I don't know what your view of the Old Testament is... But as for me and my house, my view of the Old Testament ought to be what Jesus' view of the Old Testament is. I cannot afford to have a view of the Old Testament that he doesn't have. i got to have the same one that he's got. The risen Christ stakes his identity on things that are said in the Old Testament. Just like he did. By the way, this is the second time in this one chapter. He does it in verse 27 of this chapter as well. Guys, to sum up all the senses except smell the the hearing seeing touching and then a little something eaten and then he wraps it all up in this nice and concise package by saying everything that you're witnessing is in accord with with the scriptures that you know to be true that is Jesus's case for his own resurrection Guys, this is not simply a dialogue. This is not, that's why I called it an argument. This is not a conversation. It's a dialogue that's rooted and based in some facts. So after having done that, after having uh, revealed himself that way, the, the, the guys who are in the room, to deny it now is to commit intellectual suicide. At that moment, they would be forced to deny the undeniable. Guys, do you see what I mean when I say that he's arguing with them? He argues them, he paints them into, the, into a corner by exposing some facts to them. Now, guys, I want to do the same thing with you. I want to try to do that. It it certainly won't be done as wonderfully. But I I want want to try to do this. I want to argue with you. Oh, Jimmy, I didn't come to church. I argue with my wife on the way over here, you know. But but understand how I'm using the term argument. Because modern people have a lot of problems right here. Right here on this, this resurrection business. They don't buy this. They don't buy it, they, they think it's fictional, it's hard to swallow, it's it's just a legend written by some people who wanted to believe that he rose. And so they they, they created it themselves. Now that's that's one of the, the, the stock objections that the modern world has today is that what you have recorded in the New Testament is nothing but a collection of legends. And every time we get to one of these really big miraculous ones, like the resurrection, they say that's just a legend. That's just a legend, and you know those, these people wanted to believe it, and so they created it and they wrote it down. That's what you got. Now, guys, could we talk? Let's let's talk about that for a second. Let me let me uh, let me try to reply to that that common objection. First of all. A man that you might know, C.S. Lewis, he is considered a literary genius by everybody. uh, Believing and unbelieving. Everybody loves C.S. Lewis. And he said this, I'm quoting, anyone familiar with literature knows that this is not the way you would write a fictional account, a legend. Now why does does C.S. Lewis say that? He looks at this account and he says, this is not the way that you write a fictional account. Go back with me, ladies and gentlemen. And, and notice, take a look at, once again at this, as this scene opens. Look at verses 37 and 38. Notice what they, what they're, they're startled, they're frightened, they're troubled, and they're doubting. Guys, those are the people that we're dealing with. A a, a handful of people who are a wreck. Okay? And then, after a couple of pieces of evidence, they're still, their, their unbelief dies hard, as we're told in verse 41. The cross event had not changed them. They they certainly weren't expecting him to show up. If these men can be convinced, they've got to be convinced by overwhelming evidence. you have going to have to give them some reasons to be convinced. And that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. The the truth was not admitted until they had been convinced, until they had been forced to realize that he really is here, that he really does have a body, that he really is physical, that he really is raised, not just spiritually, that he's bodily here. Hey, look at that. He ate a piece of fish. Gang, um... These men had to be reasoned into their position of confidence in the resurrection by the examination of some facts that Jesus forced upon them. If you, if you don't have those facts, then, then what you've got is wispy, it's gossamer, it's, it's, it's uh, fleeting, it's, it's unreal. Christianity is not some kind of positive thinking. It's positive thinking rooted in the Facts. Now, guys, I say all of that to say this: if somebody were making this up, you wouldn't have all this doubt at the beginning. Uh, you wouldn't have all this unbelief on the part of the twelve, and the, and and watching them uh, struggle to come to belief. You would have something like Jesus bursting in from the heavens as this radiant one. And everybody sees him and falls on their knees and worships him and shouts hallelujah. If it were legend. Another thing that you need to note is fish. Why fish? How mundane is that? Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one explanation as to why that that part about the fish is in there. It's in there because it happened it is not the stuff of legends and then not only that I've tried to make this point clear there is this emphasis on investigation take a look see it look at it touch it handle it folks all I'm saying is simply this that's not a way that's not the way a legend is written legends aren't written like this guys You don't have a legend here. You have an account of some facts put together with the mundane and overcoming unbelief. Here's the second thing that the the non-Christian world says. Okay, okay, okay. So it's not a legend. Okay. But today, um, we're modern scientific people. And our worldview just does not allow for resurrection. Our worldview would suggest that resurrection is impossible. Now, back then, uh, people were primitive. They they believed in the miraculous, you know, just happening everywhere. Uh, They had no problems with the miraculous, but we do. Our worldview will not allow such a thing as this. Now, first of all, my friend, do you see how predisposed that is? That is, you have ruled out something before you even examined it. But enough said. Guys, again, look at the story. Is that what you see in this story? When when Jesus shows up, do they say, uh, Bravo, Jesus, we knew you could do it. We've been waiting on you to get here. No. They're startled and they're frightened and they're 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 unconvinced. Nobody nobody was expecting him. And then in verse forty-one we see that they they continue to be a hard sell. Why? Well, let me explain, guys. Um, one author points out this, and you need to stay with this. This is, I, I hope it'll help. He says um, that that the only Old Testament reference, the only Old Testament reference to the resurrection is in Daniel chapter 12. And that that it is a resurrection at the end of time when everybody will be resurrected together. He says this, and I'm quoting now. He says, It cannot be stressed too strongly that first century Jews were not expecting people to rise from the dead as isolated individuals. Resurrection for them was something that might happen to all on that great future occasion when God brought history to an end and a whole new world was renewed. Alright guys. For, for one of these people living here, the only resurrection that they knew anything about was a resurrection that would occur at the end of time uh, when everybody resurrected together, nothing, they knew nothing of a resurrection in the middle of time by, by some individual. I'm saying this to you guys. Resurrection was as much unheard of in their worldview as it is in ours. There was no place for resurrection in their worldview just as much as there's no place in ours. Their worldview disallowed the resurrection too. they never saw this coming even after jesus had told them for three years it was gonna come why is it that they didn't see it coming their world view oh but 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 they wanted him to rise and so they wanted it so badly that they talked themselves into it guys you're not listening (laughs) Their worldview disallowed resurrection just like ours does. And their, their predisposition against the possibility of resurrection was overcome by being faced down with the facts. These were skeptical, unconvinced, doubtful men. Who get overwhelmed by the facts. They were given something visible, something audible, something tactile, something digestive, and then they wrapped it all up in the, in the appeal to scripture. And though they're their worldview disallowed something like this happening. They were overcome with facts such that they built a life on this and they went to their death because of it. Guys, I'm saying to you that this was as unexpected for them as it is for us moderns. But they came to believe it when they were confronted With the facts. Guys, I'll leave you with this. Let Jesus argue with you. He he answers the doubts of their minds by forcing the facts upon them. And he'll do that for you. There is no fact in history that is better attested than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered those facts? You know, guys, you sit here this morning and you believe in Caesar's Gallic Wars. You believe in the Gallic Wars of Caesar. And you know why you believe it? Because there was one document which was written seven or eight hundred years after the event itself. And you believe that. I'm telling you, I have got, hun- Christianity has got hundreds of documents written 25, 40, 50 years after the event. Have you examined those facts? My dear friends, do you understand what is at stake here? your eternal whereabouts, that's what's at stake. If it's that important, don't you think that you at least ought to investigate it? You know, if if a van full of people pulled up into your driveway tomorrow morning and about four or five people get out of the van and they're all carrying balloons and And one of them is carrying a big cardboard check and one of them looks a whole lot like Ed McMahon. You would at least open the door even though you said, I've never won anything in my life. You would investigate. I'm saying to you, my friend, there's a whole lot more at stake here. Go take a look. Go investigate this Jesus that we love to talk about. Put down your TV remote. Grab the Gospel of John. And go listen. Go take a look. Go see what you can touch. And see if the facts won't move you beyond your own predisposed world and life view to the place where you believe this. My friends, the modern world throws at the Christian message a couple of troubling thoughts on their part. And I, 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 um, I'm with you. I understand that they're troubling thoughts. But whereas I may not have answered them for you completely, they are answerable. I plead with you. Let Jesus argue with you. And just like he convinced these guys, I'm betting that he'll convince you. Who knows? What have you got to lose? Well actually, you've got a lot to lose. The Holy Spirit just may give you a personal grasp on this vital truth. And that is what will take you to a substantial, solid, lasting, permanent shalom. And even more than that, it will also settle where you spend eternity. Go argue with Jesus. I plead with you. Our Father, I, I pray that you will use what vain babblings are here to at least open the subject, open the discussion, so that men might see that there is there is um, There's room to believe that not only Jesus was a historical person, but he was God in flesh. That he did indeed conquer the grave. And I pray that the evidence that convinced the eleven, that similar evidence will convince the rest of us. That we will see and touch and hear that indeed, this Jesus is risen. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.